From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today... How do you plead to count 15 conspiracy to commit filing false documents in indictment number 23SC188947? Guilty. In pleading guilty in the Trump election conspiracy case, Kenneth Chesborough and Sidney Powell agreed to testify truthfully about what they saw and heard as Donald Trump and his allies plotted to overturn the Georgia 2020 election. What impact could they have on Fonnie Willis's case? I'm Tia Mitchell, joining my colleagues here in Atlanta. Georgia Congressman Austin Scott has thrown his hat in the ring once again in the GOP contest for Speaker of the House. What are his chances of winning the gavel? I'm Patricia Murphy. The chaos around the Speaker's race is just one of the dysfunctional pieces of the Republican Party at both the national and state level. We'll talk about that. And I'm Greg Bluestein. A Republican effort to punish Fonnie Willis using a new state law may be dead on arrival. Will Donald Trump supporters continue their attempt to sanction the Fulton County DA? We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. You know, one of the reasons we're excited about today's podcast is Tia Mitchell, usually seen on a screen on our computers, is sitting with us live in the studio. In person. Live in the flesh. (laughs) It is so good to see you. And, of course, you're wearing your Florida A&M University sweatshirt. I must say, as you know, I'm a very proud Rattler. This is homecoming week. So I'm very much in the FAMU spirit this week, but also just so excited to be in Atlanta, to eat at all my favorite Atlanta places. It's going to be great. What's your go-to spot? There are several. American Deli, Vortex for those tater tots. The burgers of Vortex. Busy Bee for my soul food. Um, And then I have some new places. There's a new place in Tucker called a Catch Kitchen, I think is the name of it. So I'm going to go eat there with some friends this week. So I'm all around, guys. Of course, we should point out that in this the AJC's Fall Dining Guide, uh, some of us uh, were asked what we'd turn to for comfort food. And our colleague Greg Bluestein talked about how much he likes the kiddie meals. <laughs> the kids' meals, super chicks, where I was going to go last night with my brother, but he canceled on us. Uh, well, you know, and in honor of Tia being here, Shaney B has new music composed by Patricia's twins. <laughs> yes, they're in a competition with Greg's outstanding daughters to have themselves mentioned the most frequently on, on this podcast. Oh, I thought, I thought it was Patricia's kids. But the we, twins are playing the strings and yes, doing all the production, it's post-production. True. It, it's true, but we neglected to mention that Greg invented the violin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Patricia, you and I are both, you and I are, you and I are both proud of our children, but I don't know about you. I always feel a little bit reluctant to talk too much about them, uh, like certainly on the podcast. Not Bluestein. He loves talking about My, my wife does not. She's like, stop <laughs> Those girls are so adorable. I, can't get, I cannot get enough of the Bluestein content. But Tia, before you leave, I want to tell you about one of our favorite restaurants. It is called the Chick-fil-A drive <laughs> And if you're not familiar with it, I can, de- I can go through some of our favorites some for you. wonderful spices on the original spicy chicken sandwich. <laughs> hey, I 
really recently tried that new um because of course chick-fil-a is anywhere including dc for me um the new like honey chicken pimento oh my god oh it's, it was hello. different it was good yes. it was different though now, no trip through the drive-thru is, is complete without 10 year old twins in your back seat so i'll make sure that we have you completely outfitted okay yeah i need visit. to get the full experience <laughs> yes all right i know we got to get to work but i have to add one note to this the general muir Toasted everything bagel, scallion cream cheese, and Nova Locks. The General Muir is doesn't good. get much Anything. better. Give me than some pastrami from here. And, uh, and then I got to get some cookies from Munster's Cookies at um, Chattahoochee Food Works is where I like to go because then I can get all the food and my oh, cookies. Yes. But Munster Craving Cookies. Okay. Always. I'm writing all these down. You're telling me things I don't know. Why right is Ligaya Figueres not on this episode? Well, <laughs> she, Coming up next, she needs to have a meeting with Tia before Tia goes out of town. <laughs> all right. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we're going to start talking about serious political issues right now. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Yeah, we've got to say to everybody, you're not in Washington today. We're all sitting at the same table in our studio, and you're here with us in Atlanta. What a thrill to have you here. I'm so happy to be here with you guys, to be able to see you guys in person instead of through, you know, video on a computer screen. So I look forward to having kind of a little bit more natural conversation that we can actually just literally sit around a table and talk about politics. Instead of us waving our hands at the computer screen. (laughs) Greg and I actually specialize in awkward conversations, so this still will be awkward. We want to warn you. (laughs) And Tia, the other thing about your being here is the mess, the chaos in the house continues, but you're here with us. You're not worried about, you know tracking people down in the halls of the Capitol to try to get interviews. Not my problem. No, I'm joking. (laughs) How could you walk away? How could you do it? It's so weird. Like I was telling everybody on Friday when I left, I was like, see you guys in a couple weeks. So um, I'll try to monitor from afar. But quite frankly, who knows if anything will be different when I get back. Austin Scott can make his seventh bid for speaker by then. Right. (laughs) Well, actually, in a little while, we'll talk about what's going on with the speaker's race, particularly in the context of the fact that Austin Scott is back in uh, uh, the race, throwing his hat in the ring. And we'll get to that a little bit uh, later in the show. Um, Let's go ahead and get started on uh, uh, our first story of the day. Uh, You know, I think most of us, uh, by the middle of last week, we're getting pretty excited 
we had a lot of sense of anticipation that we were going to see the first trial in the Trump conspiracy to overturn the 2020 Georgia presidential election because Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesborough had uh, invoked their right to an early, a speedy trial under Georgia law. That trial jury selection expected to get underway on Friday. As you all know by now, Sidney Powell uh, pleaded guilty on Thursday to a series of misdemeanors. Um, and on Friday, even as some 450 potential jurors were filling out forms in Fulton County Courthouse to start the Kenneth Chesborough trial, Chesborough, too, uh, decided to plead guilty. So we're going to talk about the implications of all that, and to help us with that, we're really delighted that we're joined by Georgia State University uh, constitutional law professor Anthony Michael Kreiss. Anthony, thank you so much for being with us today. How are you? I'm I am doing well. It is great to be back with you and all my Georgia uh, political fa favorites, and uh, to talk about all this breaking news. So I'm going to start. I'll ask the first question, and then obviously open it up to everybody else. Um, it's interesting to me that Chesborough's lawyer, uh, after the the guilty plea, and and we should point out that one of the things he, he pled guilty to a felony. Um, at, but part of the deal that he uh, had to plead guilty to is he admitted that he conspired to put forward fake GOP electors in Georgia with Trump, former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani, and John Eastman, which I thought was pretty significant admission. But it's interesting that Chesborough's lawyer said um, he's not really going to be that much help to the prosecution even when he pleads guilty. What do you make of that statement, Anthony? I, I think uh, Scott Grubman, who is uh, who's Chesbro's attorney, is a, is a very good and zealous advocate, um, and and it's it's a it's a PR um, you know statement. I don't think it's really um, I don't think it's necessarily accurate. I think that there's certainly a lot of information that Chesbro has that can tie different spokes of the racketeering enterprise that's been alleged by Fonnie Willis together, right? So he can pull in people like Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, Donald Trump, um, and show how that they were all kind of at the core of the unlawful enterprise and, and how it kind of sprawled from, from there. So um, maybe no new bombshells, right? Maybe that's true, but I certainly think it's not, an, he's not an unhelpful person to have in their pocket. Anthony, it's Patricia Murphy. Let's talk a little bit about Sidney Powell as well, because she was primarily charged or exclusively charged here in Georgia uh, because of her role in the efforts to obtain and copy servers from Coffee County. However, she was also in that Oval Office meeting in December where Donald Trump was there. And then it became a huge shouting match between Donald Trump's attorneys like Sidney Powell versus um, his actual White House counsel, Pat Cipollini, um, just going at it to say, uh, she was presenting lots of evidence about what she said, not evidence, accusations about what she said was a conspiracy between Iran and Venezuela. And she even knew of a county in Georgia that could prove it all, that they were these were all corrupt officials trying to flip it for the president. Even though these charges focused on Coffee County, do you think she poses a wider risk to Donald Trump than just what those charges reflect? Well, I think that there's a, 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 well, maybe there's two different issues here, right? One, which is she's certainly very potentially damaging for him in Donald Trump uh, 
uh, in the special counsel's case because that right that case has a lot more to do with the potential invocation of the Insurrection Act, the attempt to to take voting machines and by executive order seize them and things of that nature. So so I think that's certainly true. How that plays out in the Georgia case is, is a little less certain. I, I think it certainly feeds and fuels the DA's narrative about the national conspiracy and how deeply involved it was and how um, how how unlawful and corrupt the intent was right here. So so that can speak to the criminal intent, right? What what was what were these people thinking? Well, they were just con- concocting all these theories and, and going after everything they could in order to grab power for Donald Trump, which is at the core of, of what Fonnie Willis has alleged, even if the acts themselves might be um, more focused on, uh, you know, or be, might be more uh, a focus for the special counsel's case. But I, I certainly think that plays a role here. And I think the other thing that's important too is there's all these other actors who are doing similar things who are also charged in Georgia. And for in particular, I've been thinking of Jeff Clark, right, who's writing these memos, um, urging the General Assembly to do all these different things to overturn the election and throw throw it in Donald Trump's favor. And and so there's you know Donald Trump's trying to potentially empower Sidney Powell as a special counsel. So there's a lot of these kind of I think there's a lot of moving parts that were happening at the same time, which if you put it in one narrative shows what people were really up to. This wasn't a good faith effort to to try to make sure that the election was accurate. It was a bad faith effort to overturn it. We're here with Professor Anthony Michael Christ. Professor, you've been at like every single court hearing, right? I feel like I've seen you in the background as I'm live streaming every single <laughs> proceeding in this. Uh, so you know all the twists and turns of all this case, right? Yeah, I have, uh, and, and, and even federal court where, um, you know, I, I've become a really good court artist uh, sketcher. Yes. Because um, uh, you cannot have cameras, so. <laughs> Your sketches you know, my, on Twitter are to die for. <laughs> my stick figures are very accurate. They're very accurate. <laughs> well, you just talked to uh, Patricia about Sidney Powell, but I'm, I'm curious about what you feel, you know, Kenneth Chesbro brings to the table because it seems like he could glimpse, offer an inside glimpse of this scheme to recruit these fake electors, these alternate GOP electors. So his role in this, um, you know, between Chesbro and Powell, um, and uh, Scott Hall was seen as a sort of a lower level figure, but between Chesbro and Powell, it seems like Fannie Willis has some big fish that she just caught. I think that's true. Although I don't want to diminish Scott Hall's okay. uh, potential value here in terms of becoming state's evidence, because he had a conversation with Jeff Clark. Um, at one point. And so, which is very strange. Like, why is why is the head of the civil division of the Department of Justice having a conversation, an hour-long conversation, um, with a bail, bail, bail bondsman here in Atlanta? Um, and then, right, then they then they go down to Coffee County and engage in that that kind of, uh, that part of the, the conspiracy. Um, so I think he's got a lot to offer as well. But but Chesbro, I think for, for really what he offers is the link between the meeting of the GOP slate of electors that met in the Capitol, right, and and all the the kind of ev- or the events that unfolded there, and the decision making in Washington D.C. and so um, and and the Trump campaign, and so I I think he's um, you know again I, I think he may not shed a lot of new evidence or new light on things that we don't necessarily already know, but what he could provide in, in terms of uh, convincing testimony for a jury is to show how the national conspiracy was, was really focused on Georgia, right? And how the fake elector scheme was really a major and an important component in this grand overarching scheme. Because I think what the DA has shown in the indictment is that every time Donald Trump 
and his allies attempted to unfold one plan or to concoct one scheme, and that scheme failed. They moved on to another and then to another and to another, right? Um, and Chesbro was integral in that kind of moving the goalposts along as certain um, you know, certain tactics would no longer work, with the ultimate tactic being to attempt to overturn the election on January 6th. So, so I think he's really important in that narrative and for showing, again, right, that that, that kind of deliberate, um, intentional, you know, plan to plan to plan, plot to plot to plot movement is not something that you would do if you just have a, a sincere objection to the, the way the elections were run or you have some actual credible evidence of wrongdoing, right? You're just moving along because you're only, uh, your only goal is to secure power. And I think that's a really important part of this, this narrative. So, Professor Christ, I wanted to ask you, uh, going back to Sidney Powell, now we know that after her plea agreement, former President Trump was posting on True Social and saying, quote, Miss Powell was not my attorney and never was, which conflicts with what Donald Trump said back in 2020, where he said that he, you know, he posted on social media that Sidney Powell was part of his team and part of the attorneys who were representing him. Um, I wanted to ask, I've been so curious about this apology letter that is part of her plea agreement. What is your experience like? What form does that take? Is it something that will be filed by the court? Is it something that she's going to have to read out loud at a hearing? Like, when will we, the public, ever get to see or hear this apology letter? And how may could it be used? And by the way, Chesbro too, right? He had to mm-hmm. file an apology letter. And I think Scott Hall also had mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Did you not? So, so this apology letter seems to be kind of par for the course now. That if that's that's part of the deal, um, that's a really great question. I, I suspect that it'll be made public by the DA's office. It'll be part of the court record. So when it's submitted, I, I suppose, right? We will all. I mean, at some point, we will all see see these letters. Um, it's interesting because I, I think the purpose of the letter really is to you know, reaffirm for the public whether they testify or not, right? Um, That there is something in their hand that says we were wrong. The allegations that we made about the Georgia elections were wrong. The conduct we engaged in was unlawful. Um, And so that it leaves very little doubt, no matter what role they play down the road in in any potential trial, um, that, that they have accepted culpability and that they accept that the lawful outcome of the election was Joe Biden's, um, you know, the, the Joe Biden won the state of Georgia. So it, it'll be interesting to see exactly what the content is and, and how that how that plays out. Um, it's certainly um, an interesting dynamic that the DA's office is, is kind of pushing. Um, but, I, but I think it's also something that's important for the public, too, because so much of this um, effort is is really an attempt to redeem, I think, the the integrity of our elect- electoral system and and the democratic process. And so, making sure that people are not just held to account, um, because of course, under first offender status, um, you know, these folks are getting pretty you know sweet deals. Um, and so, I think these letters might be in some way an attempt to preserve uh, for posterity's sake, right? The the the. Um, you know, this idea that, that they're accepting their guilt and so that there's some evidence that's going to live on in the record um, that speaks to that. 
I can add a little bit about this letter. The Washington Post reported this morning that it has already been submitted to the court. It was a terse handwritten note on a legal pad that she submitted to prosecutors Thursday that indicated she was sorry for her actions in Coffee County, according to a person familiar who spoke oh. off the record, oh. or rather with um, on the condition of anonymity. So that's in today's post. Wow. Um, we'll see when we oh. get to get a peek at that famous <laughs> legal pad. Um, but uh, Professor, because we have told you what has what these, um, I guess, plea deals have sparked in us, the questions we have. What for you has this sparked? What questions do you have? And, and what has it answered for you, if anything? You know, I... <laughs> It's caused it's caused me more grief on Twitter trying to you know kind of combat folks um, left and right who think that this means everything and the world has completely changed or that this is a big nothing burger and it doesn't mean anything. I I I think for me there's very few questions that have raised and it's answered very few things for me. Um, to me, what this really is all about is about the DA didn't want to have two trials, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't think that there is some treasure trove of evidence that has been unearthed or something that has been offered um, where, you know, the DA said, okay, Sidney Powell, you've got uh, you've got all this information. Let's make a really favorable deal. Or, hey, Kenneth Chesbro, you have some new revelatory um, evidence that we didn't know about. Let's make a deal. I don't think it's really about that. I think it's about just being expeditious. It's about preserving the economy of resources. I think it's about avoiding a a full-blown trial so that Donald Trump and his allies who are still on the other side of the defendant's table um, get a preview of everything that's coming their way. Um, You know, I I think really what these two defendants did by invoking their speedy trial rights was put them in a maximally good position to strike a deal that was most favorable to them. And I think that that the big question is, what will other people looking at them, right, want to do now, seeing that they're getting these really good deals? Will that cause something to shake out? That might be the one question I have is what what will people do in reaction to this? Okay, so Anthony, I have a number of questions based on what you just said. Number one, I'm a little puzzled by the fact that you're suggesting that they're not offering any new information. That may very well be true. We know most of the stories that they're now confirming are true. But it's one thing for us as individuals who read the news, who watch the news, who who follow the case, uh, to know that these things have already been in the public sphere. But they're now going to tell this to the jury, which will decide the fate of these defendants. They're giving evidence isn't that an entirely different matter? Um, doesn't a Chesborough and doesn't a, doesn't a Powell have a lot to contribute to the prosecution as it makes its case in front of a jury? Yeah, mo- I mean, momentum matters in litigation, and optics and 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 kind of personalities matter in litigation. So, I don't want to discount the fact that you know having Sidney Powell or Kenneth Chesborough on the witness stand offering testimony as opposed to being a sitting co-defendant on trial is important. Like certainly that's really great for, for selling the, the, selling the, the narrative, showing the pattern of criminality to the jury and having people on record saying, yes, I did this. I was part of a conspiracy is really important for that, for building that case. But you know, that's a, that is, you know, so, so yes, it's, it's significant, but would I call it like a huge ground shaking bombshell? Probably, you know, probably not. I think what this really was, was you know it's kind of like I just think of it think of it as kind of game theory right it was it's what the prosecutors 
you know, it's maximally beneficial to the prosecutor and the DA's office. It's maximally beneficial to the um, to the to these two co-defendants and and the you know they just had a meeting of the minds and and that's where they landed. So yes, very it's it's significant, but I don't think it's you know it's ground you know ground altering. I, I want to ask you one more quick question, and I know Greg wants to jump back in. Um, it it strikes me that um, among other people, we know that. Um, uh, we believe that Fonnie Willis is after we call him the big fish, um, you know, Trump, uh, Giuliani, um, for instance. But it strikes me that right now, given uh, Chesborough's statements, uh, a David Schaefer has to be very uh, nervous, given that he was part of that fake elector plot. Um, and in any of the other defendants who were also um, indicted because they were part of that fake elector plot— it, do you, does it strike you that this could move them towards wanting to um, make plea deals themselves since Chespero now says, yep, it was a fake elector plot and these people were involved? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think looking at both of them, frankly, um, you know, the, the real question like for a David Schaefer is, you know, why go through that, go through the trial? Um, and risk a significantly harsher sentence when you can, you know, maybe get uh, a favorable deal under the First Offender Act and walk away with maybe a misdemeanor or two or, or one unadjudicated felony. I mean, that's a much better deal than going through trial. On the other hand, if, if he wants to be a true believer and, and, you know, stick it out for Donald Trump out of some, I think, personally misplaced sense of loyalty, um, you know, then, then maybe you, you risk that. But I think the real question is for you know, Schaefer, any of these defendants who are kind of down the pecking order is if you wait too long, right, when will the prosecutor just say, I've had enough of you, right? And and I'm not going to give you the favorable deal that, that I gave to other people. At, at what point do they just say, no, you're in it. You're in for, for everything now. Um, you know, is there some kind of, you know, timeliness to, to what's happening here? And of course, I think the, the, the DA's office wants to get those few top fish. They want Trump, they want Eastman, they want Giuliani. I don't think they're very particularly concerned about David Schaefer, for example. So, so the, then the question is, you know, does the, does the DA off, DA's office try to kind of winnow people out? Because that'll push the timeline up for when they can actually bring this to trial if there are fewer defendants, fewer pretrial motions because you have fewer defense attorneys and the like. Um, and so it's, it's kind of to everybody's advantage the further you go down the, the, the line. Um, to, to make deals and, and to kind of just put them behind, put this all behind them and let the DA's office focus on those three or four people that they want to focus on. Beyond the courtroom and the legal strategy, Professor Christ, there's also the political implications. And the message I've gotten from Republicans is how hard this makes it to castigate Fonnie Willis's prosecution as just a simple witch hunt, because now you've got two of Donald Trump's top allies now acknowledging they've done wrong and saying they'll cooperate. So I, I know this is not going to stop Donald Trump and, and some others from saying it's a witch hunt, but do you think it makes it more difficult for them to make that argument in a convincing way to Republican voters out there? Well, yeah, certainly when you have two people who have admitted that they were part of a conspiracy, and, and importantly, two different parts of the broader conspiracy, right? Um, so, so I kind of think of it as, right, the racketeering enterprise is, is a wheel and you have different spokes in that wheel, and Chesbro and, and Powell are from different spokes for, for the, the most part. Um, and they all, all spokes lead to Donald Trump. And so to the extent that you have people on the record admitting that they did wrong, admitting that they, that, that they did something unlawful, 
um, expressing some degree of remorse, although I suppose Sidney Powell doesn't seem to be um, too excited about writing that letter if it was just scribbled on a notepad. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but to the extent that, that you have people on the record admitting that they did the things that, that they did and that they're willing to kind of take their, uh, take their licks for it, um, certainly that makes it a little bit harder to say this is just a witch hunt and that, you know, these people are truly innocent. Um, um, you know, especially I think what's what's hard for maybe the GOP base a bit is you have this like law and order crowd, which, you know, of course, we could spend days on what law and order actually means. Um, but this idea that, you know, people, you know, if you commit a crime, then you, you know, you should pay up for it. You know, it's it's really hard to, I think, uh, to kind of backpedal from from this and say that it's a witch hunt when people have admitted they've done something wrong. Pia, last question before we break. I'm going to make it really quick. Is there anything that, you know, it was thought that if Powell and Chesbro had gone to trial, that would have exposed the case and possibly helped the other defendants see what the state's case was against them? Is there anything that you think the defendants might gain or that could help their case by Sidney Powell and Chesbro pleading? Or is that only a benefit thus far to the prosecution? Yeah, I think that's a it's a it's a one way ratchet there. I think that really only benefits the prosecutors at this point, because, um, you know, all the benefits of, of having a long drawn out trial was both in terms of seeing evidence, but also delaying proceedings for the, the remaining co-defendants was, um, you know, it's, it's wiped away now. So uh, I think I think there's going to be a, there's there's probably a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth in a number of lawyers offices over this weekend trying to figure out what to do, because, like I said, I think it really is all to the prosecution's benefit on this one. All right. Um, Anthony Michael Christ, we always love having you help us understand uh, matters in the court, especially this extraordinary uh, conspiracy case that Fonnie Willis is uh, prosecuting. So thank you very much for being uh, with us uh, uh, for Politically Georgia uh, today. We're going to take a quick break right now. um, But when we come back, We're going to talk, yes, we are going to talk about the fact there's still no Republican nominee for Speaker of the House, and Austin Scott has thrown his hat back in the ring. Does he have any chance at all? We'll ask Tia Mitchell and the panel. You're listening to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. We think that the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. That way, by the way, you get to hear what Tia Mitchell, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, and now Adam Van Brimmer are writing as they update you on all the big political news of the day. You can join the community by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast. You'll get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast so you'll always know what's really going on. So, Tia, <laughs> you left Washington over the weekend and uh, the last reporting you did uh, basically was that once again, 
The House is without a GOP candidate for Speaker Jim Jordan. Friday finally dropped out after three votes, failing to get uh, the uh, numbers he needed to win. And now the race seems to be wide open. I count nine, ten possible candidates for Speaker. And the reason we talk about it today largely is because Georgia's own Austin Scott has decided he wants to try it again. Yes. So it's Friday was another crazy day in Washington. Friday morning at 8 a.m., Jim Jordan had a news conference where he basically said he's staying in the race. He's going to if he doesn't win on the third ballot, which was going to happen in a couple of hours, he was going to keep trying. Well, the third ballot happened. Once again, he didn't become speaker. Once again, he had more Republicans voting against him than the previous round. And then they come out of the vote. They Republicans meet behind closed doors and they take a secret ballot vote. And on the floor publicly, there were, what, 25 votes against Jim Jordan? Well, the secret ballot vote, there's a majority who doesn't support Jim Jordan uh, remaining the nominee. And so he agrees to drop out and they agree to reopen the speakership race. But what was so telling to me Friday afternoon, as those members left that closed door meeting, the House Freedom Caucus members and the Jim Jordan allies were so mad and they were blaming the quote unquote swamp for taking Jim Jordan out. Andrew Clyde was so mad. He didn't want to talk. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene was, you know, in the Matt Gates of the world. There was even some sniping. Like if you look on, there's some clips on CNN where they're interviewing uh, lawmakers live, CNN and C-SPAN. And then another lawmaker would come up and make like a, a snarky comment or directly challenge them within earshot, you know? And so it, it's just, I don't think, and I think people at home are getting tired of like hearing about the drama, hearing about the chaos. And it seems like such a sideshow, but I just want to continue. I know we've been talking about it on this show, but there's real ramifications of this. We do not have a functioning federal government right now with all that's going on in the world. Uh, Tia, I want to talk about Austin Scott too, in particular, because he made that lightning bid a week or a half ago or so, um, lost, of course, uh, and is now back. But now he's one of nine candidates. And we've described him as sort of a maverick of an independent streak as a Republican, very conservative, but uh, willing to go against the party line. And, you know, this statistic that Jake Sherman from Punchbowl News put up is really intriguing because it shows that Austin Scott is one of only two of the of the nine candidates who voted to certify the 2020 election. He's one of only four of the nine candidates who voted for Ukraine aid. And he's only one of a handful of the candidates to back that sort of stopgap funding bill. Um, so he seems to have going against the the uh, the ultra conservative. He looks like a on. moderate. He looks by, like a moderate, even by though he's not. Comparison. He's yeah. not, but... Um, the the House Republican Conference has kind of shifted so far to the right and been pulled to the right by things like Kevin McCarthy's initial speakership bid further pulled the House Republican Conference to the right. Um, I'm going to read Austin Scott just this morning uh, sent out an email to constituents that kind of framed this run for speaker. And he writes, 
Um, our goal and our duty is to make Congress function, and to do so, we have to rebalance power and work together. I intend to shift power away from the Speaker's office back to individual members in their respective committees. I believe in the committee process, and the only way we can govern as a majority based on principle and not power is to respect the committee process. So he's trying to frame it as um, making it less top-down, which is something that, quite frankly— um, the people who oppose Kevin McCarthy, that's he's echoing some of the concerns that were raised in January. So I think he's speaking to some of those hardliners who felt that the speakership, the way the House has been run, has not empowered the rank and file. But what we've seen, not just with the speaker's race, but with the government shutdown uh, chaos, the debt limit chaos, the the rules, the procedural votes that are failing on the House floor is that empowering the rank and file is easier said than done. And um, there's a reason why Nancy Pelosi had such an iron grip. And there's a reason why when they do government funding is usually these omnibus bills that are negotiated with a, a small group of people and don't necessarily come through the committee process. And, and that's because that's been the only way to get things done. So we'll see if this message resonates. We don't expect Austin Scott to really be a front runner, even though anything can happen. Um, he's not very well known. Um, he's not in leadership. Yeah, I think you make such a good point. E even Kevin McCarthy promised to return to regular order, and he did promise to pass all of those appropriations bills through their appropriate subcommittees. So he promised to do that. But to your point, that's very difficult with a majority this size, this narrow, as well as who is in that majority, people for whom breaking the institution really is the goal. And it's not something to be avoided. It's something to run toward. Um, I think, Tia, also, these are the types of fights that are not quickly repaired. And I think the dysfunction we've seen so far is peanuts compared to what we're going to see in the future based on how ruptured these relationships have gotten inside the conference. Uh, if you had to handicap it today, who does look good <laughs> for speaker? I've heard people say, None of these look good. And there's going to be another a whole nother round. Yeah, I don't I struggle with seeing a path forward for anyone because there are so many fractures and the the hardliners. So there were 20 hardliners that opposed McCarthy in January. Then there were eight who took him out on October 3rd. And then there's an untold number of hardliners. But we think, you know, 10 to 20 who told Steve Scalise, don't come to the floor because you don't have the votes. And he never attempted to. These are the farther right of the caucus. And so you need to find a speaker candidate who can appeal to them because nobody can become speaker if they lose more than four members. And the smallest group that I just mentioned was eight, right? But so much animosity because of these hardliners means that now, if there are candidates who the hardliners really, really like, there are people who will oppose them just because they don't think the hardliners who've caused the gridlock should win. And so, it, quite frankly, the, the vote against Jim Jordan, which started at 20 opponents, went to 25. Not all, but there's some of that 25 is believe that 
I just don't want to let the hardliners win by letting them have their candidate, Jim Jordan. So again, if that's more than four, now someone that the hardliners back can't become speaker. Hmm. So a chamber that lacks consensus is looking for a consensus leader. Yeah. And that might be among Democrats. So over the weekend, uh, the Sunday shows, uh, uh, there was a conversation in at least a couple of them about, will voters remember this in the 2024 elections? Have Republicans doomed themselves to lose the U.S. House um, in 2024? It's a long way off, and there are a lot of people who suggested, you know, people who are political observers of some merit, who said, it's a year away. It's not going to matter a whole lot. I'm wondering what all of you think about that. I think it is going to matter. I mean, I think it could matter, but also I remember back in 2020, early 2020, when we thought the uh, we in the media were framing the 2020 election as a litmus test on impeachment of Donald Trump. And by March of 2020, it was a very different issue. And by summer of 2020, it was a very different issue. Um, so, I, But I do agree. Look, I mean, what Tia was saying earlier, the federal government cannot function right now without a without a active acting speaker of the house a working speaker of the house to pass key legislation and so democrats can easily kind of point the finger over across the aisle and say hey they can't get their act together well the other aspect i'm sorry but let me add this please patricia the other aspect of this is that's assuming that there's a stopping point to this chaos they'll eventually get a speaker but we could see well into 2024 the same kind of divisions among republicans upsetting all of the legislation they try to deal with yeah i think that um the conversation will move on they will get a speaker many people will forget this ever happened or they'll forget who who caused it or why it happened or when it happened. I think the more pressing problem for Republicans is that this will drive some members to retire and leave Congress sooner than they would have. They are missing time with their families. They are um, a part of this completely chaotic, dysfunctional, mistrustful, occasionally malignant group of people. They came there to help the country and they're getting nothing but grief in return. And some people are going to leave. They don't want to do this anymore. And if those are in swing districts that Joe Biden won, Republicans have a major problem on their hands. Look, could we turn the conversation? It's part of it's part of the, the same thing we're talking about to the column that you put up over the weekend. Your headline reads, um, the weak MAGA broke the GOP. And among other things you say, look closely at every level, you'll see a shell of a political party with members who don't trust each other, don't especially like each other, and as the past weeks on Capitol Hill have proved, simply cannot function at the moment. And then you extend it to Georgia in some ways. Well, you know, in Georgia, we have a state GOP whose primary function is to raise money for the defense fund of their members who are indicted for felonies. That's just not normal. As a result, Governor Brian Kemp had to create essentially his own political party to do the nuts and bolts, not the counties. You know, they are quick to say, and it's true, the county Republican parties are still intact. Many of those are being driven by divisions as well. But at the state level... Uh, Governor Kemp, Kelly Leffler have created entire shadow organizations to do polling, fundraising, turn out the vote, knock on doors. That's supposed to be the party, and it's not right now. At the presidential level, the leading candidate, the runaway candidate, is under indictment in four separate jurisdictions of more than 90 felony counts. 
that's not normal either. <laughs> so you have we all talk to the Republicans in this state and nationally who are fighting for their party, but either roll their eyes or hold their breath and say, I, I don't know who those people are. You know, they it is they are really struggling right now. And on the other side, you have this loyal Trump base who doesn't want anything to do with those people and said, you're the problem. They don't even talk about Democrats anymore. They talk about each other. So we have a situation with Republicans and it's not going away soon. And almost simultaneously, Greg, you put up a piece talking about how Brian Kemp is continuing to try to hold the line against the far-right Republicans in Georgia, who he believes, who he repeatedly says, let's focus on winning elections, people. Let's stop with the extremism. Yeah, and Patricia and I were at that event at the governor's mansion a couple weeks ago on a Friday, I think it was, Um, just as it seemed like the U.S. House was on fire, just as that vote to to vacate the speaker was, was, was playing out. And it just reminded us of that contrast between what's happening in Georgia, the relative stability that T is now coming into, relative, uh, compared to Washington, that is. And we, we see the governor's efforts to kind of hold the line against the um, the Colton Moore the, of the world, the state senators who are trying to be the Matt Gateses of, of here in Atlanta. But to Patricia's point, yeah, there's two different Republican parties, but they also overlap with each other in a significant way. And what we've seen in polls and just being out there and talking to voters and going to grassroots events is that, yeah, you can have Republican voters and, and leaders who love Donald Trump but also love Brian Kemp. And that's the weird dichotomy we're in right now is there are those two different Republican worlds, but they do have a significant overlap. Yeah, it, I told uh, a Republican re- recently that it just feels like they're on an island of normal. You know, they're all rowing in the same direction. They had a sort of a the Colton Moore moment, but he he was by himself. Everybody rallied around the governor. And these are people who support Donald Trump and support Brian Kemp. And I'm sure if the rest of the country could bottle that, they would take it and pay a lot for it. Because Georgia is really the exception to a lot of these rules, with the exception of the state GOP. Right. I was just going to say there, the problem is there's a conservative media ecosphere that even let's take the Jim Jordan thing. They were going around saying, if you vote against Jim Jordan, you're voting against Trump. You're you're not a real Republican. Um, it really the Jim Jordan speaker race became this proxy battle between these two Republican parties. And so you can take the most conservative. Drew Ferguson is really conservative. And but he mm-hmm. because his allies um his allegiances are elsewhere, decided to stop supporting Jim Jordan for speaker after the first round. He said he received death, death threats, threats, him and his family. Um, and, and when I talked to him Friday after the third round, but going into that vote on to whether Jim Jordan should remain the speaker nominee, I said, is there anything at this point Jim Jordan can do to get you back on board? Can, can he fix this? And he said no. And that's what I'm saying. These these relationships that have been damaged. He had death threats against his children, and Jim Jordan would not commit to calling off the dogs. Like you can't get over that. I right? Don't, I don't he like see put how you out get past something, that. but it was considered too little, too late. Um, it was considered that again, Jim Jordan behind the scenes was uh, was stroking these divisions, and it's a mess. On it's a mess. 
and I don't really see a path for it. Well, we got to get to our final break. One of the things I think we really learned last week about the Jim Jordan effort to become speaker is that Sean Hannity may have a very popular TV show, uh, but he's not very good at whipping votes. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he did not succeed in getting Jim Jordan elected speaker. Um, you're listening to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. We're going to come back in a minute. Greg Bluestein has some brand new reporting that suggests that the people who thought the new commission overseeing district attorneys may not, in fact, be able to make a case against Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. We'll be back in a moment. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our colleagues at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you informed on all the developments in the Fulton County case against Donald Trump. Now the AJC is putting our coverage into one place with the Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll get our latest coverage and analysis of this historic case in your inbox. Sign up today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter, and it's completely free. Greg Bluestein, you, you've got some pretty good reporting uh, that we can talk about now. Um, we all know that uh, the Republican legislature uh, last session passed a measure signed by the governor, pushed by the governor, that would uh, create a commission that would have the ability to oversee the work of DAs in jurisdictions around the state and to take action against them uh, if the commission felt they weren't doing their job uh, correctly, responsibly, letting criminals get away with too much. And there were a lot of people, of course, who thought Fonnie Willis was, was one of the main reasons this commission was put together. Um, and, in fact, state Senate uh, leaders have now said they plan to file a complaint against Fonnie Willis. You say that now that you've looked at the rules of the commission – they may be unable to do just that. Yeah, that complaint might be DOA, dead on arrival, and we'll see. Um, but the commission has to come up with rules and regulations. I got a copy of those rules and regulations that they're proposing. The Georgia Supreme Court has to sign off on that code of content, conduct. Um, so it's not a done deal yet. But what was really interesting about the rules and regulations is one of the, one of the, uh, the statements, one of the policies was anything, any conduct that took place before the Supreme Court signs off on these rules is not applicable under the law. So that means it still hasn't happened, right? So that means anything that was done before the Supreme Court um, has a chance to sign off the rules couldn't be eligible for any sort of sanction or punishment from this from this new law. And if you're looking at what Fonnie Willis, if you're looking at the Trump supporters who blame, who want to punish Fonnie Willis for bringing an indictment against Donald Trump, well, that indictment came in August. The investigation uh, began more than a year ago. So um, I, I've talked to multiple legal experts, including uh, Anthony Michael Crisis Associate, uh, uh, Clark Cunningham at Georgia State University Law School, who said that it's probably dead on arrival. That's not the only reason. There's also other stipulations in those proposed rules. Rules. Again, they haven't been confirmed yet, uh, but they would set a pretty high bar for removing or even sanctioning a prosecutor. I can already see the court case 
<laughs> bubbling up over this, Patricia. Oh, absolutely. But it's such a reminder that the devil really is in the details on in laws like this. So this was being presented as a way to speed up the process, to have real oversight with real teeth over locally elected prosecutors. And those same prosecutors said, actually, it's the voters who have the oversight and they will toss a DA who needs to be tossed or it could be the state bar or it could be um, any other numbers of remedies. And so it's very possible that the DA's whom this was specifically targeting, including um, the DA in Athens, Clark County, Deborah Gonzalez. I mean, she has a she has a challenger coming up. Um, the The election may make that question moot after all. But I will tell you, if we rewound the the debate on this and we told the lawmakers in the room, by the way, everything you're talking about, none of that's actually going to happen. It's not going to be applicable to the commission that you're creating. There would have been a lot of disappointment because they had very specific people they wanted to go after for very specific reasons. Now they're going to have to prove that that is somehow um, some kind of pattern that is ongoing in order to even bring it to the commission. And it even feels slow to gel. I think the feeling in the room, even over the summer, was that October 1st, green light, green flag, get your get your complaints ready because this commission is going to tackle these problems. And at this moment, it feels very unclear when that is ever going to happen. You're exactly right. I mean, the members of the two different panels, there's two different panels. There's a hearing panel and there's an investigative panel. They've been appointed by legislative leaders and Governor Kemp, but they're still looking for a director. They're still looking for their their uh, their rules and regulations to be signed off on, and they can't move forward without either of those things. And you know, we 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 don't know how many complaints have been filed so far. Right? They're keeping a lot of these things under wraps, um, but we do know uh, because I got a copy of it, or at least I reviewed a copy of it. We do know that the first complaint they did receive was from Georgia Senate leaders, Republican Senate leaders, targeting Fonnie Willis. Which I find, by the way, interesting, Greg, because as Patricia just pointed out, um, um, uh, Deborah Gonzalez was the name that Governor Kemp was thinking about when he decided to really get behind this legislation. And yet, uh, to the best of my knowledge, there's nothing been filed there. Yeah, and there could be. I mean, there could be a complaint targeting different oh, well, laws that we haven't seen yet, but it would make it very hard to go after her if the rules are yes. that none, no action done before the Supreme Court signs off on the on the rules is applicable under this law. Well, I only mention it to you because it obviously Fonnie Willis is an even bigger target for them than Deborah Gonzalez. Right. I think that's the difference between what the law was created to do versus what the law... Some people find ways to use the law for their political reasons. And so we know that Fonnie Willis is the name that resonates. She's the one with national name recognition at this point, not Deborah Gonzalez. So I think those who I'm not saying their intentions aren't real. I think they truly do believe that Fonnie Willis should be removed and isn't a great prosecutor and all those things. But if you're going to go after someone now where Everyone knows the commission's not functioning, so right now it's just political messaging. Then what's going to resonate more is Fonnie Willis. And that's what makes this whole thing so interesting, because doing the legislative debate, Governor Kemp, Houston Gaines was a state lawmaker who sponsored the bill, other supporters, they were careful never to invoke 
um, Donald Trump or Fannie Willis's name. This was always going to be about not just Deborah Gonzalez, but there were Republican examples of prosecutors. Uh, one one uh, district attorney out in West Georgia. Um, other incidents that Republicans said, hey, this is the reason why we need a panel that presides oversight, much like the JQC, the Judicial Qualifications Commission, over, provides oversight over judges. Um, that being said, you know, in more recent weeks, we've also now seen the governor and Speaker of the House, John Burns, both says explicitly this panel should not be used to target Fonnie Willis. And you know what? That brings us back to something we talked about a couple minutes ago, I think, Patricia. It, it's Brian Kemp, and now the Speaker as well, essentially joining him. Brian Kemp saying, focus on how we win elections. Stop being diverted by issues that aren't going to keep the Republican Party in power. Yeah, I mean, we have uh, those two leaders who have proved themselves over time very steady and not to be drawn off of their own goals for this state by outside forces especially Donald Trump. Um, but I think this panel will eventually serve two purposes. One is to investigate local DAs whose offices are a problem. Uh, the other is to be a repository for lawmakers to make political statements and say, well, I've, I have indeed filed a complaint about such and such local attorney. It's one of the ways they can go back to their constituents and say, I hear you. They're locally elected. Tip, technically, I have no, no oversight over that person, but now I have filed a complaint. Done and done. All right, we are just about out of time uh, for today's Politically Georgia, but I want a quick preview, Greg Bluestein. We're going to talk at some point this week, don't know exactly when, um, about the deepening of the Savannah port once again. It's a big story. You were down there to talk to the Ports Authority to see a presentation. They're going to spend something like $2 billion if they can get their hands on it to deepen the port again. But it's going to require a huge bipartisan effort in a time of partisan division that may be hard to heal. Good luck, uh, Georgia officials. Exactly that. You know, it took it took a two decade long effort uh, that just was culminated last year, and they'll need another one of those if they want to do it again. Yeah, well, you can look for, forward to us having that conversation as the week goes on on politically Georgia. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. We're now releasing new episodes every weekday, so you can usually find new editions sometime in the early afternoon. All of this is leading up to the October 30th debut of our new Politically Georgia radio show, which will air Monday through Friday morning at 10 on WABE. That is one week from today as we record this podcast. In the meantime, join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on.